0: You can't just have a crack at it for the funsies.
1: Welcome to Thinking Deeply about Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor, but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And together, we're going to continue exploring the 2022 Education White Paper. But first, Chris, what are you reading for?
2: Hey, what are you
1: reading for?
0: Uh, this week, I I think I'm a little bit late to the party on this one, but this week I discovered a blog by Neil Gilbride, really fascinating. It looked at aspects of personality and how they might be, there might be positive and negative aspects to the same character traits, so for example, someone who is meticulous organized might also be someone who gives you a hard time for being late to things or um, how someone who is spontaneous might be someone who in their weaker moments uh, lets you down because they're focused on something else with someone else so um, it was a really interesting blog that made me reflect on some of my own personality flaws that you two will know all too well um, but it was yeah I'd highly recommend it It's just one of those blogs that you read and you then think about it for quite some time and he's written really interesting stuff in the past as well so worth checking out what about you Neil what are you reading for
2: so I've been quite fortunate in that with our trust we've just kind of finished uh, three CPD sessions with Alex Bedford on people book study and there's a book that pretty much goes through that process as well so I've been quite fortunate in that I've Uh, Read a copy of that, a really interesting take on assessments. I think, you know, retrieval practice, you know, low-stake quizzing has been, you know, uh, in vogue for quite a while in terms of, you know, how we assess what students know. But obviously, it shouldn't be the only thing that teachers, senior leaders rely on to kind of uh, test and check whether the uh, enacted curriculum is indeed being. learned by pupils and so his pupil book study idea just provides a really interesting and useful framework that teachers and senior leaders uh, can use to um, talk to students funnily enough uh, just about their work and their learning so you can get some quantitative data from quizzing platforms but then you know that's only ever going to tell you half the story i think uh, immersing yourself in rich discussions about what pupils are learning is such an interesting way to work out what's happening in schools. So really enjoying uh reading that. What about you, uh Kieran? What are you reading for? I've mentioned this before in the podcast,
1: but I've got a point I'd like to make about it. It's the history of Europe. I think it's just called Europe by is it Norman Davies, Chris? And in it, he makes an argument at the start, quite a long and drawn-out argument, about how he thinks that histories, you know, at the time were too specific and too focused. And I, I went back to this book to find some information on the Vikings, and in particular the Great Heathen Army, because I, I want to do some stuff where I really went in depth into it. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how I was listening to the New Silk Roads and the power of geography at the same time, which are both reasonably expansive in terms of the geography they cover. And I decided that I prefer the more detailed and specific, because across those 936 pages, there were maybe six pages, and within those six pages, maybe 15 sentences about Vikings across all of European history. And I just, I was left dissatisfied. I was like, okay, well, you know, do I really want to invest in this and have a superficial knowledge of all of European history, or would I prefer to know about certain things in depth? And I think I form the opinion that I much prefer the latter. You know, obviously, Chris, I'm happy to listen to your retort on this, but I just thought I'd mention it because I think Adam Smith mentioned it in season two that he prefers, you know, those books that look at one day in history. And that's something I'm sort of warming to, you know, so that's what I've been reading this week. And I was left with a sour taste in my mouth. Oh,
0: I think that's slightly unfair on the book. There are glorious little vignettes throughout the book that are, you know, given a little bit of detail about, sorry, a lot of detail about something that you hadn't considered at all about previously. So I think it potentially satisfies those urges for those that are more that way inclined. It might be the case that it does just speak to my own desire to know a little bit of everything rather than a lot about um, a few things. Perhaps playing devil's advocate on behalf of the book, I think perhaps it's by by giving you that overview to begin with. It allows you to put into context those areas that you do particularly enjoy. Maybe
1: I, I've no doubt it's without peer. In terms of what it sets out to do, I've just decided that that's not for me at the moment. So this week we are back with the two thousand and twenty-two education white paper. We considered some of the the key themes last time out. We're going to just continue on with that sort of process. And the next thing that stood out to me was that it said we will deliver, I think this is one of the subheadings, we will deliver
2: 500,000 teacher training and development opportunities. Thoughts? You can never have too many teachers, so absolutely bring it in. However, if you're not going to sort out teacher attention, what is it, one third of them leaves within the first uh, five years, then it's a failure and a bit of a waste of money, to be honest. So I think, yes, obviously we need teachers. I think the latest uh, data for people wanting to teach and uh, teacher applications is, you know, there's only two or three subjects, I think, meeting their targets. Um, so unless you're really fixing up the system when the teachers are in it, which and I think they were kind of hoping that the early career framework would help doing that. Depending on who you talk to, um, it's either pushing more people out rather than uh, keeping more people in. If I was to Ofsted grade this particular point, I think I'd go with uh, requires improvement.
0: I was immediately reminded of the, I can't remember who it was in government that made the statement at the time during the pandemic when there was this talk about PPE equipment and someone said, we've delivered. 50 million bits or whatever the number was but they gave this lovely round figure and then when you dug below the surface you found that you know they were this close to using each separate finger on a glove as a separate piece of um, PPE equipment this lovely big round number these professional development opportunities what do I mean by that and The fact that there's, what, a 60-page document and they haven't specified what they mean by these professional development opportunities um, makes me, again, perhaps that's a bit cynical, but it makes me think they've just found a way to make a nice big number.
2: This is when uh, Kieran chimes in and says uh, he's been bankrolled by the DFE and we're part of this professional development uh, machine.
0: Oh, I love the idea of like the Thinking Deeply podcast being considered as one of these professional development opportunities what are we on this will be something like episode 65 66
1: well if you believed all the amazon reviews you might think that that's the case and the only right number they left out was my wage (laughs) um you know i think the same mathematician might have been involved in this paper because i've actually dug deep into some of the numbers we'll get to them in a little bit and uh yeah watch watch out i mean it sounds impressive. I think we do need to focus on training and development. You know, the development point, like you say, Neil, is really, really important. Making sure that those teachers who are here feel proficient. What would you do? What would those 500,000 teacher training experiences on development experiences be?
2: I think you obviously have to give everyone, I think, secondary learning some principles of Early mathematics, early literacy would be quite important. My probably most unpopular opinion is that those secondaries who are you know, attempting to go for the uh, some sort of you know mastery uh, cycle, you're you know, seven years too late about it because by that point, you know the gap is you know seven. To nine years, if not more, and if you don't have the pedagogy of how to deliver a phonics lesson, or you don't know how you know, number bonds manifest themselves, manifest themselves first of all through uh, subitizing and things like that, then any mastery elements that you think you're providing are, you know, still built on sand. Which is not to say that obviously there's not much to, that primary teachers can't learn from our secondary colleagues of course there is but I really think some subject specific CPD wouldn't go amiss then for primary school teachers not just more generic ideas of what good teaching might be I think you need that pedagogical content knowledge but also I think if there were a suite of subject knowledge courses that teachers could put themselves on as well um that would be quite a big thing i know chris ran an interesting poll on twitter recently about who he thought um well, could every teacher i think um in your school would they reach the expected standard at uh key stage two mathematics uh, there were quite a few that said that they don't think every uh, teacher could And so I think between some real subject-specific pedagogical content knowledge and some real specific subject knowledge enhancements, as well as more focus on our secondary colleagues, understanding what those foundational elements of learning in the core ideas of reading, writing, and arithmetic, I think those wouldn't go amiss. And by the time you've done those for every element... I think you're probably about one twentieth of the way there to your uh, to that number. This feeds directly into my point, and the second part of
1: the specialisation three subject manifesto, because if we bring back the mast, you know, for instance, Matt Swain, tremendous mathematics teacher. That's the kind of teacher the mast produces. You know, every mast teacher that I know. Is operating on the same level as Matt, and we said everyone, okay, get really good at teaching one or two subjects. Then you spend your training making those teachers you're describing, you know, and that that really signed both subject and subject-specific pedagogical content knowledge. So I yeah genuinely think, you know, it's a shame that that course doesn't exist. And if we had an equivalent, for instance, in reading, and the other subjects that we want to teach then I think you're not far off effectively using those 500,000 training and development opportunities in the best possible way
0: I think in some ways actually there is an opportunity for something akin to mastery style teaching at secondary school that doesn't exist at primary school because in a lot of places they have that setting so if you're a large enough school and say you've got sets one to eight you do have something akin to a relatively homogenous group of learners, which you don't, in terms of their previous knowledge, which you don't really have at any point um, at primary, um, even though people like to pretend that we do in, say, year one. So maybe that's uh, one bit to push back on there. Where I absolutely agree with you, Neil, is about the on the subject of, of subject knowledge just to mention the polling question was a little harsher than that I asked whether teachers would get a hundred percent if they had as much time as they needed and a chance to check their answers so there were no silly errors it was a way of asking really whether there were teachers in the school that didn't have mastery of the full primary mathematics curriculum it was a way to ask that and it seems to be the case, I think it was around 93 or 94% of teachers said there was someone in their school or there were several people in their school who would who don't have mastery of the primary mathematics curriculum. I think this is one of these areas where primary teachers perhaps don't realise how that might sound to people on the outside. I think, and again, maybe I'm an exception here, I think it's a it would be a good thing if primary school teachers were for all fully competent with the aspects of the maths curriculum that we expect of 10 year olds Um, and I think that we don't do enough as a profession to support teachers who come into primary teaching they may not have learned or done any mathematics for quite some time and they very rarely actually receive professional development related to subject knowledge and I think so much of the pedagogical content knowledge can be developed through the way that we engage teachers with subject knowledge so i think there's a there's a win-win there i think this speaks somewhat to something that primary colleagues understandably complain about which is the extent to which aspects of what we do tend to have come from secondary i think or i would imagine at least that subject knowledge is somewhat less of a concern for secondary teachers who are more likely to have a degree or at least a levels in the subject that they're teaching yeah so i think this is one area where some primary specific focus on professional development would be really useful that's only as you say though tiny little chunk of those five hundred thousand professional development opportunities there was a really
1: interesting part there chris where you said i completely agree with you neil so i'm, I'm sitting here wondering are my ideas not not being received by the audience (laughs) in the way that they're intended?
0: (laughs) No, not at all. No, I I think the idea of saying that there's no more art, music, history, science, geography in the primary curriculum is bound to be popular, Kieran.
1: (laughs) No, it'll still happen, but it just won't be my responsibility.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fair. I can live with Um, that. No, it it
1: will, but... um, yeah we had to work out the the age but I've got until 2030 to work out the full detail of the manifesto and you know we'll see so this next one I think might speak to all of us it says we will permanently embed evidence at the heart of teacher development what does that mean
0: to you and what were your thoughts when you read that in theory I think that is a worthwhile aim and I think there are Aspects of what the government has tried to do over the last decade or so with regards to evidence in education that are worthwhile, regardless of what I think about the government generally. It pains me to say when the current government have done things I agree with, but there are circumstances um, that force me into it. That said, the devil's in the detail, it's what they mean by embedding evidence in the profession. I think it's very easy for us to become a profession that believes that it's possible to base every decision on evidence when in the end it provides a lone star. it doesn't tell us exactly how to navigate towards that lone star. one of the things that jumped out to me and this
1: probably speaks to another point later on sometimes there's an issue in education of whose evidence because isn't there an issue with what the EEF say about reading and the position that you would adopt, Chris, in terms of reading instruction and how to
0: support pupils in learning to read? I think with a body like the EEF, what they're trying to do, particularly in the area of reading, is take a mountain of research and make it accessible. And I am the first person who would sympathise with that task and the potential for making mistakes or not. Being as clear as you'd like to be, and what you choose to leave in, so and um, and leave out when you're doing that. That said, I think there are elements about the EFS, um, the way they describe reading or have described reading in the past, that wasn't ideal. In particularly, in particular, relating to reading recovery, I personally respect the fact that they have stuck with a slightly more. What I'm looking for cautious approach of of describing evidence around phonics and talk they tend to focus on the consensus that there is around systematic phonics without getting into the bolder approach to say that synthetic phonics is definitely the best way to do things lots of people that I respect but don't necessarily agree with would take that more cautious approach I think there are still some bits and pieces where teachers could get the wrong impression when it comes to the teaching of comprehension skills as such and still end up teaching inferencing on a monday and prediction on a tuesday but i think that's more down to the way that the thing that things are communicated and the difficulty of trying to communicate something quite so complex in a relatively short space generally though i think the eef reports are a positive thing in reading and they do a pretty good job well i should clarify that i'm very much in favor of a
1: body like the eef you know, I think trying to be more evidence informed, evidence led, whatever the parlance of the day might be, is a good thing. I suppose the point I was trying to make was the need for more than just reading the summary and acting on the summary. You know, there there is so much more, like you said, cautious approach. It involves really getting under the skin of of what the message is and to avoid things like lethal mu- mutations we need to dedicate serious time to being evidence-informed, you know, which lots of people do. And so I'm not taking a swipe at the EF. You know, very much, I think, the the more accessible we can make research for teachers, particularly, you know, time-poor and enthusiasm-rich primary teachers, the better. But I think, you know, it's a point worth making.
0: Yeah, I I think if... I mean, particularly with something as broad as literacy, I know that there are, the EEF have one for key stage one literacy, key stage two, one for secondary. I've read through those fairly recently, and they're all, you know, the advice in there is pretty solid. You think, you know, if someone came to that with very little understanding of the evidence related to literacy, they'd come away with that with a better understanding. But if they are then not using that as a jumping off point, using the references that the EEF are are using, then it could easily lead to people getting the the wrong impression. I think I might have said it a few times before on this podcast, which is that when it comes to poor decisions, the worst decisions I've ever seen made in schools are those who have a, a superficial understanding of a little bit Of evidence, it's not those. Those who know nothing about evidence tend to roughly be okay because they're not going out there generally with these big bold ideas. Having said that, I said that online the other day, and I remember I think it was Alex Quigley pushed back on that, and I remember coming away from that thinking, "Yeah, no, maybe I've just been lucky. Maybe it's just the case that the schools I've worked in that have made really big errors have been those who that that happen to have had a superficial understanding of the evidence." And maybe there are schools out there who have no understanding of evidence who are still very
2: bold in their mistakes. I think um, the other thing you need to be mindful of, I think, with this evidence is obviously the replicability crisis that uh, particularly educational research has. There's very, unless you're really kind of digging into subject specific stuff where, you know, hundreds, thousands of studies are done. Yeah, it's difficult to replicate any kind of research that's done, with anything that's done in the actual classroom is so difficult to replicate. So you need to be careful. And so I think, as I say, and whilst I do definitely agree, there is this need to be evidence informed you need to be very careful that that doesn't become an easy way to shut down any uh, discussion or debate as to the direction that that evidence is then um, pointing you towards
0: yeah very few expressions are as dangerous in our profession as the evidence says the next thing that stood out
1: was really interesting but i didn't necessarily know too much about it he said we're going to establish an institute of teaching. Can you guys give me some background knowledge of what that means? Because I've seen the name on Twitter, but I don't know too much about it. And, And what does that mean to you guys?
0: Effectively, I think the idea behind it is that there is going to be an initial teacher training provider that is closely monitored in order to ensure that it's evidence informed in the way that we've just discussed and that it will be used as something of a flagship for evidence-informed initial teacher training and arguably against which they will attempt to judge other ITT providers. I think as well, the the idea behind it is that it will be um, like a, a laboratory, a small laboratory for trying out certain things and for using it for the basis of research to see in the phrase that they might use, what works and what doesn't work quite so well.
2: It's not just there to teach uh, early career teachers, but I think it's there to develop. I think the new national leaders of education is also going to have some remit in training up those people who have uh, experiences of turning around those uh, quote-unquote underperforming schools. Uh, you know, They'll be sent to this institute a bit more training and then be sent out to educational investment areas in, in the hope of turning around these uh these schools for all that um you know that's worth so is
1: this potentially the first tangible action in the document it's 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 jumping around at me is the first thing that's actually going to happen that we can see why it might be beneficial, you know, standardizing the quality of training for both our most experienced and our least experienced. This sounds like it could have quite a decent impact on teacher confidence, teacher competence over an extended period. Am I interpreting that right?
0: I think so, but it's generous to, because this is nothing new. I mean, in terms of the announcement, this is old. You know, people have known about this for a long time now. This is really just saying, oh, by the way, we're doing this too. So if we consider it as an essential aspect of the white paper rather than just a reminder of something they've already announced, then yeah, it has that potential. But on top of that, it's, as with many aspects of this document, it sounds good, but it's a bit like someone saying, you know, I'm going to make you a delicious cake. It's like, well, fantastic. But in the end, a lot of this is going to come down to who's making the cake, what are the ingredients? And without knowing those things it's impossible to judge whether we're talking about something that is is going to be as good as it's described.
2: Yeah and just to pull on Chris's metaphor there there's also uh, quite a lot of other cake makers in this market in terms of uh, training teachers so it's going to be quite an interesting I'm eager to see how this uh, institute kind of fits in with the like the regional school hubs who you know who are um, you know, fulfilling the early career framework right now and how those elements all come together. So like is this institute going to kind of like sit above those and then it's going to then kind of like pass and like information down through these hubs? Is it going to almost, you know, make the hubs Almost, yeah. Are the hubs going to be, you know, drawn in and become part of this institute of teaching? That's the the level of detail that I'm interested in, and that I don't think I've seen an answer to. But I think you're right, Kieran. I think it's also uh, one of the things that um, a minister could come on the television tomorrow and say, "Oh, look, you know, here's the first new shiny thing that we said we were going to do." Um, isn't it really shiny? Isn't it great? It's going to make life so much better for everyone. But I think, I think the ball's in their court to make this a worthwhile uh, investment in terms of public spending that actually will have uh, tangible outcomes for teachers and therefore students as well. Ooh, that's on me then, because I was today years old when I
1: read about it for the first time so yeah maybe that's been in the background i've just not really paid attention to it so yeah watch this space so then we spoke a bit about teacher retention in the last episode one of the things in the section you know, around page 23 when they talked about investing in teachers attracting the best teachers was an increase in the number of people who get the opportunity to experience teaching before deciding whether to enter the profession what do you reckon about the success of that model and what what might that model look
2: like i can't see it working <laughs> quite honestly i think it sounds ridiculous um at least if they're only in it for a, you know, if they come in as a early career teacher yeah it's Someone who really knows that it isn't for them who therefore like doesn't see out the rest of that um induction period if you're kind of giving people a taste of and it also all depends where they are but if you're giving people a taste of do you know what actually um you know sometimes you know the children are quite rude to you, or yeah it isn't just uh you know you're not rocking up at half you know ten minutes before the kids. Arrive and you're uh, certainly not leaving. You know, ten minutes after the kids arrive, and you know, you're doing a potentially fifty to sixty-hour work week. I can't see how that's going to help things, personally.
0: Even practically speaking, I'm trying to think how you go about that. How how do you get people trying out teaching? There's a responsibility here. You are educating children. You can't just have a crack at it for the funsies, you know like oh yeah take my lesson for a bit see if you like it that's that would be irresponsible i presume that's not what the government are considering but i wouldn't necessarily put it past those in power given their seeming understanding of the education system at point in theory the idea of people somehow having the chance to experience the classroom uh, assuming the DBS checks and that sort of thing are all in place, the chance to be a teaching assistant for a few weeks and to be paid by the government, say, to be in a classroom and to see what it's all about as a way of attracting graduates. I know for, from personal experience, there are quite a lot of graduates who come out of university and go, I thought I'd have an idea of what I wanted to do with my career by now, but I really don't. And so some opportunities to experience a classroom, to see what teaching is about might be a good thing. However, coming back on Neil's point, and I'm full of the food metaphors today, but I think there's an extent to which teaching is an acquired taste. And for a lot of people, it takes a little time to acquire that taste. And you might put people off. Who otherwise had they not had that taste and just gone straight into a PGCE and then felt forced to give it a year because they've committed that time to a PGCE? You might actually end up losing teachers because that initial experience of teaching might not be positive, particularly if you are someone who works in a challenging secondary school or who has that experience in a challenging secondary school where the the joys of it sometimes aren't immediately apparent.
1: You listen back to all the interviews that include people recounting their initial experiences of teaching. It's really clear that the first couple of years are tough. And I think in episode 10, Chris, we talk about our experiences as early career teachers and how we just felt like we weren't very good. And we we then was crushing. It's only when you get proficient that you start to enjoy the job. You know, I think last time Neil was talking about how he wishes he could spend more time in the classroom. You know, I love being in the classroom now, but in year one, everything was a struggle behavior, pedagogy, even the small details of school life. You know, so it runs counter to the experience of a teacher, I think, because I think we've got a big enough sample. You know, some of the best teachers i know struggled in that first couple of years so what, what does that mean for someone who's just having a taste you know i think if you can if the early career framework radicalizes how teachers experience those first couple of years and once we've refined that model and we've got a system that allows people to flourish early on then perhaps that might be a really good idea but then this might be something that It's one sentence in a 68-page document. It may never be mentioned again. This might be the most it's ever talked about.
0: (laughs) Uh, It certainly might be the most it's ever thought about. You are channeling your
1: inner Ian Hislop, tonight, Christopher. (laughs) So then we move on to, I think, one that you guys will find most interesting. And it's all to do with the idea of curriculum design and how it's an expert skill. I'll read the paragraph. Curriculum design is an expert skill, yet too many teachers reinvent the wheel and design new lessons with recent teacher tap data showing 46% of primary teachers are planning their lessons from scratch. This situation fails those new teachers and fails the children they teach. In no other profession are newly trained employees expected to discover by trial and error how to deliver. Instead, as with other top professions, we must do more to support new teachers to succeed. Now, I reckon we agree with the sentiment, but how do we make that reality?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's a bizarre one because it was almost like a rite of passage. Certainly when I was training and perhaps it was when you two were as well. Um, It was almost like a rite of passage in that. You had to almost make your own things from scratch, and it was actually seen, uh, you know, as some sort of underperformance. The fact that you might dare use someone else's planning, resourcing, worksheets, whatever it may be, and you were potentially made to feel, you know, quite quite guilty that you know, despite putting in about sixty hours worth of work, you still weren't working hard enough or long enough to to make it happen i agree that um especially with that first sentiment about you know curriculum design being an expert uh, skill and i think yeah why would you want to overload uh, novice teachers with not only you know effective pedagogy and you know just you know the day-to-day school life which is all consuming with also now i really want you to think about how you're going to you know, sequence your maths contents, <laughs> you know, especially with our hierarchical subjects, which you know relies so much on you know, getting that order relatively you know, arranged and organized in a relatively sensible manner. How we make that happen, how the government want to make it happen is through the use of uh, Oak National which um, obviously was created uh, during the pandemic and uh, came up very quickly uh, to support plenty of schools with remote learning. It's an answer. I don't think it's the answer. And I don't think even I would personally be comfortable of just One organization just offering one particular passage, I think, uh, package. I think there does need to be some sort of marketplace. I use the term marketplace uh, with a bit of caution, in that I think, and this is something that Christopher, uh, that old socialist, has definitely uh, fundamentally changed my thoughts and opinions about the competitive nature between schools and, you know, schools paying other schools for. Uh, resourcing despite the fact that it's public funds that have created those resources in the first place. So I mean it's good that Oak will be free but I'm conscious that you know they're putting all their eggs in one basket and it's just all kind of going to be you know Oak will somehow save us. I think it probably will be better than you know going on to TES and just typing in a few keywords and downloading whatever you know, PowerPoint, it's going to, you know, teachers will hopefully be saving money from this and not buying some pretty, you know, dodgy resourcing for £2.50 from Tesnick going to you know whoever, whatever teacher, or in some cases, just someone who's just uploaded something. So, yeah, I'm eagerly, not eagerly, I'm cautious about what's going to happen. I hope it works, but I think it's going to need a lot of work to make it successful what i hope though and this is um one that i'm sure you'll agree kieran is that this could be the precursor to the national textbook that's
1: exactly where i was going to come in because i think my my point chris runs counter to neil's i really like the idea of a central curricular body that enacts an actual national curriculum whereby like i said before autonomy in this area is reduced to increase the consistency of offering to pupils where i think i would go further because it says that engagement is optional and that it will be done in collaboration when they say about we need experts to design that in thinking deeper primary mathematics i talk about how many experts you would need And how long they would need, and how difficult a process curricular design is. I would have experts in each field without ministerial intrusion making the decisions, and then for a 10 year period, that's the national curriculum. And then we review in 2040, and then we review in 2050, and then that way. We can ensure the diet that pupils get. We can trust that they're made on sound bases. So I would go further than what's suggested in the document. And I think I'll regress because I've made myself perfectly redundant.
0: I don't think I'm totally on board with the idea of a central, fully resourced national curriculum in that sense if it means that schools have to use it they have to use it and they have to use say the resources and the lessons that might come with it in the way that is stated I think it has to be I mean there's value in there being a centralized curriculum or a set of centralized curricula from which to choose certainly um, I think schools should ideally have then have the room to adapt it change it personalize it make it suit their communities because one of the first things you think here is that that little kind of small percentage of any curriculum it is and it is a small percentage in my view but that kind of three four five percent that is you know this is about our community it's about our community's history our community's geography etc i think you're losing something with um a true national curriculum if they don't there isn't room to adapt that I also think there's questions about small schools if you're a school with um, um, shared year groups and you have to go on a two-year cycle exactly how that works if you've got a, a curriculum that's sequenced from one to six well it doesn't And you can't just then say, oh, well, we'll teach it and then swap years round because it won't be sequenced properly. You really have to do some quite different curriculum sequencing to make something work in those smaller schools. So I think there has to be that flexibility. I'll very quickly push back on the idea that I'm a socialist. I am very much centrist dad. (laughs) I am like I'm one of these people who thinks that, you know, markets are quite a positive thing, but they are a beast of burden. They need to be reined in in order to be in order to be positive, um so yeah, so i'm just I'm just imagining like people sending me um das capital through the post. It wouldn't be the end of the world <laughs> something to read
1: improvement but,
0: yeah, in short though, you know I've advocated for there being some sense some centralized resources um so this could potentially be done well. I'm slightly worried that again it comes back to who's delivering this who's who's sorting this and I don't mean Oak because I fully respect what they did at short notice um, during the pandemic I know a lot of schools including one I worked in benefited hugely from their work but I do slightly worry that there are ministers um, right now who are saying well well Oak exists we just need to give that a little bit of a tweak and that's ready to go and that just obviously isn't the case it is miles away from being a curriculum that a school could pick up and use like miles away from that so it's effectively a job of almost starting from from scratch for oak or whoever then works with oak oak to contribute to that so as long as they don't think at the government that the job's mostly done and so they want it rolled out in the next year or so and that there's genuinely the time dedicated to bringing in profe- um, expertise from across the profession and outside the profession then yeah it could be positive but again I guess it comes down to how much you trust the government in this case.
2: It will be really interesting and like you I think it's one of those things it needs a lot of time like writing a curriculum just one subject is going to take ages if somehow you know Oak will have to go on a massive hiring spree and take out teachers you know if it's going to be the expert teachers take those expert teachers out of the classroom to actually write these things and like i said you can't rush it you're going to need a good two you know, it's probably going to be more like you know, closer to 2030 than to 2020 you know by the time this could be up and running to the point where it's actually you know of high quality what it could do quite interestingly is almost make the inspection framework somewhat redundant because the moment one school is rated you know good or outstanding in terms of their curriculum and they just follow what oak had done i think you'd see then quite a substantial change in what uh, schools do or could change to make it know, make the work-life balance you know far more favorable to their teachers So I'm completely with you. I think the expertise is key.
1: But I also have the confidence in those behind Oak to either search out those experts where necessary or to use their own expertise in development. But we'll still be going in in 2030. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out over the, the lifetime of the next eight seasons of thinking deeply, or next eight years of thinking deeply about primary education. I think, in terms of unique to schools, and you know, I completely agree, Chris, that there are elements of geography and history, and, and perhaps most of the foundation curriculum that are quite specific. But if you recall, in my dream scenario, we're only teaching three subjects, so that doesn't sound like a me problem. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we finish our second, but not final, episode on the 2022 white paper so all that's left to say is thank you very much for joining me chris thank you thank you neil always a pleasure and until next time to everyone at home thanks for listening